The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. The Gospel of the Lord. second reading today is St. Paul's letter to Timothy, and he's writing about the sufferings that he's bearing, and how he's even in chains for the love of Christ and for the good of the gospel as he goes forth to spread the good news of salvation in the world. And it's a common thing for him to do. Indeed, the lives of the saints have indicated throughout the centuries that it's a, a good thing for us to reflect upon the ways in which we suffer with the Lord. To reflect upon our own sufferings, to reflect upon the sufferings of Christ. In light of that, it came to me that another account of one who was praying with the idea of sufferings, St. Faustina Kowalska. St. Faustina is the great apostle of divine mercy. If you pray the divine mercy chaplet or if you hear of the divine mercy, uh, it came forth from her. The Lord Jesus came and appeared to her and gave her the good news to be able to spread this time of mercy in the world. And St. Faustina was one who received the special grace of receiving visions from Christ. How the Lord came and gave her a unique experience, not just of meditating on the mysteries of the sufferings of Jesus, but experiencing them herself. To be able to experience what it was to be scourged, to experience the crown of thorns, to experience the pain and the sorrow of his heart of being rejected by his disciples as they all fled, except for John. She experienced these things in a unique way. She knew the sufferings of Jesus, and she tried to unite herself to them. One day she was in chapel, though, and the Lord came and gave a different experience, a different understanding of sufferings. And he showed her a multitude of people, a great number of people, three of them, in fact, three groups that she were divided. And he looked out and he said to her, do you see these people? She said, yes. And he described them to her. He said, see, the first group are there holding their cross. The second group, they have their cross on their shoulder and they're walking, but they're dragging it behind them kind of reluctantly. The third group, he said, see that they are nailed to their cross. She gazed out and saw these things and he looked at her and he said, To the extent to which we unite ourselves, to unite yourself to my sufferings, to the extent that you nail yourself to the cross, to allow that you allow yourself to follow me and for your own will to die, to that extent you will also be with me in glory. To the extent that you suffer with me, to that extent you will receive glory. 
That's essentially what St. Paul also says in the scripture today. That if we die with Christ, we will live with him. And if we persevere, we will reign with him. If we allow ourselves to be united to Christ in his sufferings, in imitation of his obedience to the Father, we will share in his glory. That story came to mind because we essentially see those three groups of people, those three responses to the will of God in the scriptures today. Two of them we see embodied in the person of Naaman. The ones holding their crosses are the ones who they they recognize the cross. They see the cross. They know the plan of God, and yet they say, no. Like little two-year-olds, we stomp our feet and like, I'm not doing it. No, God. They recognized the cross but refused to follow. And that was Naaman. We saw it uh, in in past days. It's not in the, the full text that we have here today. But Naaman was one who was very hard of heart. He was one who had been inflicted with illness, with leprosy. And he went around and it was common for one to go from place to place to place trying to find who was the best healer so that you might be able to be healed. And evidently he had tried a number of other places. And yet they weren't effective. And so it comes to Elisha, the prophet, the great prophet of Israel, the successor of Elijah, because he knows he's a man of great power. He's a man of God. And he comes and he puts himself and he says, I want to be healed. What do I do? Go dip yourself seven times in the river. And Naaman looks at him and he goes, we've got nicer water where I'm from. I've seen more healings over there. That seems kind of a small thing to do, rather simple, just to dunk myself in the water seven times. No, I'm not doing that. That's too simple. God doesn't work that way. God wouldn't heal me that way. It has to be something much bigger. And he starts to walk away. He sees his cross and he says no. And he begins to leave Elisha the prophet and the others who were there. One of his servants comes up to him and he says, Naaman, stop, stop. If he had asked you to do something great and big, something very difficult, you would have easily done it because you would have thought that was the will of God for you. But he's asking you to do something so simple, just to go to the river and wash in it seven times. You've come all this way. You spent all this time, all this effort, all this money, all the the food, the resources for us all to come here with you. It's all retinue. Why not just go try? And Amen has a moment of conversion. And he says, okay, I'll follow the Lord. I'll, I'll go. And he goes and he plunges seven times in the waters where we pick up today and he's healed. And he goes back to Elisha because he realizes who God is. He realizes that God doesn't work exactly in the manner that he desires. But he's willing to follow the way the Lord as the Lord desires. To do God's will. Rather than to to hold the cross and look at it and say no, to climb upon the cross and to allow himself and his will to be crucified, that the will of the Father might be made manifest. It's interesting, he comes and he goes back to Elisha and he he wants to give a gift, some kind of monetary donation or some sort of of, of donation to to show his gratitude, right? A lot of times we see that, you know, something, you know, we we receive a blessing from God and we we want to do something in, in return, and Elisha goes, no, that's, that's not why I'm here. He says, I, I, don't, I don't want anything. Just, you know, it's fine. But we see a, 
interesting response on Naaman's part. He says, okay, if you won't let me give you a gift, at least let me take two mule loads worth of dirt with me. To us, that seems kind of an odd request. But for them, it was quite sensible and it was a profound expression of faith. In the days of Elisha the prophet, there was an understanding that gods were kind of localized. That there was a God of this place, and the God of that place, and the God of this place. And wherever you were, that's where your God was. That's who your God was. That's why we, he, he says, whenever he realizes he's healed, he says, Now I believe that there are no other gods but the God of Israel. The God of this place. All the others are fake. This one is real. And it's this one that I want to be with. It's this God. But he also knows, I want to go back home where I'm from. <laughs> And so I need this God of this land with me. So I want to take two mule loads worth of dirt so that the God of Israel might come with me as I bring part of Israel back home. So that he could build an altar on that dirt and there offer sacrifices to God. He's essentially saying, I've been healed and I want to do anything and everything to be united to this God because I know this one has power. Great testament of faith. We see a similar testament in the gospel as we have the ten lepers. Again, one of them is cleansed and one of them comes back to the Lord and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, much like Naaman did with Elisha. Throws himself at the feet of Jesus, thanking God for such a profound blessing. Again, he too realizes the way in which God has worked, that the will of God has been made manifest. And he climbs up on the cross to rejoice, to follow the Lord, whatever it may be the cost. These are two great examples. But the problem is that group of the nine. The nine should trouble us a bit. The nine who receive healing from Jesus himself. Who when he goes off, they, they too, they receive that simple, that simple penance. Go wash in the water, except it's now go show yourself to the priest. An easy thing. They don't expect God to work that way, but they kind of humor him in a sense. And when they're healed, they don't come back. And that group is that middle group that was described as St. Faustina. Faustina, who the ones who pick up their cross, but they still try to go their own way. They drag it grudgingly because they don't really want to follow the will of God, but they will if they have to. That's them, the nine. The ones who go off... And they recognize the will of God. They go with it a bit, but they still try to make it their own path. They still try to make the cross their own. Not simply to climb upon it and allow the Father's will to be perfectly completed. And my brothers and sisters, the nine is the easy way. And the nine is us. We are the nine. A lot of times we can be the one who's reluctant and, and completely, completely hard-hearted to God. And a lot of times we can be the one who is completely open to God and everything He desires of us perfectly. But the majority of the time, we're the nine. We're the ones who accept the will of God, but we still want it our way. I'll do your will, Father, but let me tell you how it should be done and when it should be done and in what manner it should be done. I'll do your will, Lord. I'll allow myself to suffer a bit, but I'm not going to the extent to which you desire. I'll do your will, but I'm not going all the way. It's a reluctance of our heart. 
It's second best when it comes down to it. And the scary thing is, the devil loves second best. He loves it. We don't talk about the devil that much these days, unfortunately. Maybe I should. But the devil is real. And the scripture says he's prowling about like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. He's looking after each of us every moment of the day. He and his, and his, and his minions, the other, the other demons of the earth, they're prowling around trying to find ways to lead us away from Christ. They're not so foolish as to try to come to us and put that thought in our mind to completely reject Jesus or completely reject His will. They're not foolish enough to think that we will fall for that because usually we, we see it for what it is. We see that, no, this is, this is clearly not God. This is clearly something that's turning me away from Christ. No. When we see a, a, a firm rejection of Christ, we usually recognize it for what it is. And so the devil knows that. And so rather than choose that path and be completely rejected... He encourages us to choose second best. Whatever he can do to get us a little bit closer to himself and a little bit farther from Christ. Anything that he can do to gain us a little less grace than we would have. To love Christ a little less than we could have. To be able to follow the Lord a little less closely and to be more concerned with my will than I would have been otherwise. That's what the devil loves. And it's our job not to make the devil happy. It's our job to reject his lies. Because he's a liar, he's a deceiver. So often he, he points out things to us as if they were good. But it's only because he knows that they are the second best. And it's his hope to draw us away from the Lord. Christ calls us. And he calls us to perfect obedience. To a way to allow ourselves truly to be crucified. And not just simply to grudgingly carry our cross, dragging it behind us. He calls us to much more. Because he wants us to have his glory. Remember, if we die with him, we will live with him. And if we persevere, we will reign with him. To the extent that we allow our sufferings to be united to him in this life to the extent that we are obedient to the Father in imitation of Him, to that same extent, we will share in His glory. That's a big thing. To allow ourselves to rejoice in the glory of God the Father for eternity. It's the good that Christ calls us to. There are many things that we could reflect on, on how we respond to the will of God. We could look at how we bear our own crosses, our own sufferings. We could look at the ways in which we desire healing, much like the ones in the Gospels. We could look at the ways in which we struggle with the will of God in various other ways through the course of our life. But I want to invite you to reflect upon three ways which God calls us to Himself. And they're rather simple. And yet I think they are the foundation of our entire life of faith. How obedient we are to the Father's will in the manner of these three things. Confession, Mass, and daily prayer. Confession, Mass, and daily prayer. I've often said, and I've, I've, no, I've preached a number of times about it, 
That for us to have growth in this spiritual life, for us to have a life of faith that's actually nourishing and being, being productive and producing fruits in the Holy Spirit, to go to confession monthly, mass weekly, and prayer daily. You want growth? There's your system. The church sets the bar rather low for us because she knows that it's difficult for us sometimes because we do struggle with carrying the cross because nine out of the ten lepers struggled with it. And so the, the church recognizes and sets the bar low for us but encourages us to go higher. We're required to go to confession once a year, often known as our Easter duties, right? To make our Easter duties, to go to confession. But who among us would rather go an entire year of harming relationships only to say, well, I only have to say I'm sorry once and it covers everything. Do we not rather, whenever we hurt someone that we love, go back and, and apologize rather quickly? Do we not rather go back and ask for forgiveness for our faults rather than to wait for two, 10, 12 months later when it doesn't really hit us as much. To go to reconciliation frequently is a wonderful grace to allow us to encounter the mercy and the healing of Christ, to heal the relationship which so often is wounded by our sins, though we can be unaware of it. The church calls us to go to Mass once a week. We're obligated once a week on Sundays to attend Holy Mass, as well as on, uh, as well as on the Holy Days of Obligation, so it's about... Uh, 57 times a year. This year you, you get out easy, I think, because uh, a couple of days are on Sunday. So I think we're down to 55, uh, 55 days, 55 hours this year that God calls us to be at Mass. 55 hours. Who among us has worked more than 55 hours in the past week? Right? Think about the time that you put in just in a work week. Or the, t- the time that you, pen- that you spend just on your children or your grandchildren. Think about those relationships, how they important are for you. God calls us for 57 hours roughly. A very, very small amount. He would love more, certainly. But for us to be able to recognize that, and even if that's the best we can do, because again, work obligations sometimes prevent us from getting to daily mass and such. But if that's the best we can do, to squeeze every drop of the joy, grace, and peace that we can out of this Mass. To enter into it as fully as we can. And to rejoice in the celebration of Mass. This encounter with Christ in the altar. And lastly, daily prayer. Daily prayer really is the, is the key to all of this. Because we can go to confession frequently, we can go to Mass weekly. But if we don't have that encounter with prayer, our relationship with Christ really will not grow. Because basically, then it becomes simply a, a means so often temptation of becoming a checklist conversation. It's like our novena prayers that we have where you pray the same thing every week. Right? And on Thursdays, we pray novena to Mother of Perpetual Help at the church, which is good. It's holy. It's beautiful. But our, our relationship with the Lord is based off of a script. There's an issue. My relationship with Christ is based off of someone else's words, someone else's prayer. Rather than my own encounter with him, allowing my heart to speak to him and his heart to speak to me. And it's not really a relationship. It's a book. It's a story we read about. But it's not a relationship with Christ. And so the Lord calls us. 
How faithful are we in obedience to the Father? Confession, Mass, daily prayer. He sets the bar low because He wants us to come. But as soon as we commit, He invites us to come higher, to go more, to go farther, because He loves us. Because He wants us to share in His glory, because He wants to have us to experience His peace. Ultimately, just like the ones in the Scriptures, because He wants to heal our aching hearts. Let us pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit in this Mass. The Holy Spirit who is, who is already residing in our hearts by virtue of baptism, He might come and be stirred up once again. And as the Lord Jesus comes to us in the gift of the Eucharist, we might be able to have those blessed gifts come and conform our hearts, to soften our hearts, to convert our hearts once more today, to be able to seek the will of the Father and to do it with joy.